Our Old Testament scripture reading comes from Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. John Demoniak was born in 1920, and he survived the ravages of World War II. I was born in the Ukraine in 1920, and when the war ended, he married and moved to the United States and became a U.S. citizen in 1958. And by the mid-1980s, Demoniak was working as an auto plant worker in Ohio with a mortgage and three kids, and for all intents and purposes, he was living uh, the American dream. He was an American success story. An immigrant um, living in the suburbs, paying taxes, attending church regularly, and raising a family in a nice neighborhood. Until one day, the FBI received an envelope from the KGB in the 1980s that a former Nazi concentration camp guard and war criminal was living in their midst. A former Nazi concentration camp guard at Treblinka prison, who was remembered as Ivan the Terrible, and the name in the KGB dossier was Ivan Demoniak, now going by the name John Demoniak. The story became an international scandal. He was stripped of his U.S. citizenship and deported to Israel, where survivors of the Treblinka concentration camp, one by one, gave emotional testimonies and personally fingered John Demoniak in court. Throughout, Demoniak maintained that he was innocent. The testimonies, though, were damning, and the jury convicted him and sentenced him to hang. There was only one problem, that after the conviction, it was proven that John Ivan Demoniak was not the same Ivan the Terrible, nor was he actually a guard at Treblinka concentration camp. His sentence was appealed and he was later released, and it was later revealed that Demoniak was originally a soldier in the Red Army during World War II, but he had been captured by the Nazis. And after being captured, he was sent to a prisoner of war camp in 1940, and he colluded with the Nazis, who then trained him as a guard at Sobibor Prison, where he worked for the rest of the war. And the Israeli government, who had already tried him once, was by this time exhausted by the mix-up and decided not to press any more charges. But now Germany wanted Demoniak, and they deported him and put him on trial for war crimes as an accomplice to the 28,000 murders carried out in Sobibor, which were mostly Jews who were gassed there. 
And even though he ended up not being the person he was accused of being, he still colluded with the Nazis, and his story is somewhat tragic. Because if you think back on it, he was 20 years old when he was captured, and working as a guard in a Nazi concentration camp may have seemed like a small price to pay to save his hide. When you're 20, you don't always make the best decisions in the world, do you? But because of what went on at Sobibor and all the concentration camps, the popular imagination has little to no tolerance for Nazi war criminals, real or perceived. And the whole fiasco proved one thing, that collusion with the Nazis on any level in America is our unforgivable sin because of how horrifying and evil the Holocaust was. We have little to no room as a culture to forgive those people. Well, in Scripture, there is a sin that Jesus says will never be forgiven in this age or the age to come. And we're talking about hard sayings of the Bible. And this morning, we're talking about something that the Bible identifies as the unforgivable sin. Now, your ears should perk up as we're talking about the unforgivable sin because it might sound kind of scary. We often think of God as a loving and forgiving God, and we should, but the idea that there is something in Scripture that is communicated to us that is unforgivable, well, that should cause us to pay close attention. Well, let's read the text this morning in Matthew 12, 22 through 32. This is God's word. Then a demon-possessed, oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I, this is Jesus talking now, cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven and whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Let's pray before we get into our time in the Word. Father, thank you now for the grace that has given us Holy Scripture. Open our hearts and minds that we might learn what you want us to know as your people, the church. Open the eyes of our hearts, O God, and speak powerfully. May your spirit quicken our hearts and our minds that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, we're coming up on Good Friday and Easter, and I thought um, we're going through this series called Hard Sayings of the Bible, 
And it has been hard. As we've gone through these topics, they have not always been the most encouraging because, you know, the Bible is not just like a book of happy, slappy sayings. There's a lot of encouraging, inspirational stuff in Scripture, and there's some weird stuff in there, too. There's some hard stuff. There's some stuff that requires us to slow down for a moment and give it a closer look. Because, look, if God put it in his word, it's important for us to know and understand. So I thought, well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's not a good text for Easter morning, so it's good that we deal with it a few weeks out. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what is it? Why is it so bad? And can a believer in Jesus be guilty of it? Those are important questions. What is it? What is blasphemy? The word alone just sounds kind of scary. If you've paid attention to sort of international news, you'll know that in Muslim countries in recent years, people are executed for blasphemy. So not just within the Bible, but in other religions, people consider it a very, very serious and grievous offense. But what is it? Why is it so bad? And can a believer in Jesus be guilty of it? Well, blasphemy is simply speech that denigrates or slanders. It's like reviling speech of disrespect, you know? It defames or denigrates. And so blasphemy isn't just a feeling, but it's, or a thought, it's spoken. It's speech. And the context for us this morning is that if you, if you read through the Gospels, one of the things you see is that Jesus' miracles became impossible to deny by his enemies. And yes, Jesus had enemies. We don't think of Jesus sweet, meek, and mild of having enemies, but Jesus had enemies. And you might think, well, why would someone want to deny his miracles? Well, Jesus was sort of a rogue in the eyes of the religious leaders of his day. He didn't obey their customs and he hung out with sinners. And he made the people who were supposed to be the religious authorities often look bad because, well, Jesus wasn't playing by their rules. He was playing by their own. He wasn't playing by their playbook. He did things that frustrated them and offended them. And I often wonder if Jesus was alive today, would he sort of fit in our conventional norms of religion and religiosity and church and all the things that we think like please God? And I suspect that there, there would be some resonance, and then there were some things Jesus would do in our culture that we would think is utterly alien and foreign. You know, part of what happens is, you know, when you come to faith, and if you identify as a Christian, you sort of start to create, especially if you have kids, you want to insulate your kids against bad influences, and so you sort of remove yourself from forces in the world that are wicked and evil and worldly, and over time, what starts to happen is you can develop a sort of fortress mentality, right? It's us, it's them, we build this high wall, you know, the bad people are over here and we stay over here because we wanna raise good kids and we get that, we do. But on some level, there's like a breakdown, I think, that often happens, I think it's common. I don't think it's just common to our age of, the, of Christians in the church, I think it's happened over the centuries where we wanna create like, you know, like a compound of Christian, you know, living. And we don't want the wicked and evil influences, you know, bearing in on us. And that's fine, but what ends up happening is we don't bear down on them either as we share or are supposed to share our lives with our community and our neighbors and, yes, even sinners. 
And Jesus did that. And it frustrated the snot out of the religious leaders. They hated that because over the centuries, they had developed this sort of philosophy of being holy by not even interacting with people who were seen as being sinners. And of course, what's so obvious is that the Pharisees and religious leaders themselves were sinners, right? And so Jesus hung out with sinners and it frustrated them. And at the same time, he was doing miracles that they could not deny. They couldn't discredit his miracles because they were plain and obvious for everyone to see. So what they did is they came up with a very clever move and that was to attack the power by which Jesus was performing those miracles. Like, yeah, they're miracles. People are being you know, healed and the blind are receiving sight, but the power that he's doing it, right, is the power of the devil. It's not the power of God that is making Jesus heal people and bring them back from the dead, that Jesus is doing it by the power of Satan. It was essentially a charge of sorcery. Now, who's heard the word Beelzebul before? Yeah, some of you have heard it. Um, it literally translated means, translated it means Lord of the Flies, or Lord of Flies. And if you think about the implication, it essentially says uh, your God is a God of a dunghill. So it is a blasphemous, scandalous insult to say that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. It was a charge of sorcery. It was also a horrible slander against the Holy Spirit, which was the power by which Jesus was doing what he did. They were essentially attributing the work of the Spirit of God to Satan. And I would have to think that this is something that really frustrated Jesus. It had to because his whole ministry was casting out the works of Satan and darkness. And time and time again, Jesus came, Jesus said he came to destroy the works of darkness, to destroy the works of Satan. Jesus came to bring life. Satan came to, Satan's job was to kill, steal, and destroy. So everything Jesus was doing was, was not to prop up Satan, but to destroy Satan. And so to receive this charge that his works were the works of Satan had to be something that, that really created an indignation in Jesus. And his words here prove that. Jesus left the riches and splendor of heaven. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He experienced all sorts of suffering to liberate humanity from the work of demons and the devil. And look at what Jesus says in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that downplaying or denying the work of God's spirit in another person's life and then take it a step further by attributing it to the devil was going too far. This was a warning of all warnings. 
Now, when people ask, have I ever done this? Some, some of you may ask this. Well, you may think, have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? But it's a pretty good sign if you're concerned about it. And some theologians would say, if you're concerned, if you have ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit, it's probably proof that you haven't. Because the kind of people who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit are also not the people who are seeking forgiveness. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by unbelief. And the Pharisees who said this were treading on dangerous territory. And they didn't care about Jesus' forgiveness because of their unbelief. They didn't want to be forgiven. So what is it? How could we summarize what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is? This hard saying. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit. A willful, determined opposition to the present power of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to put the statement, blaspheming the Spirit cannot be forgiven, alongside statements like, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. Not whoever believes, if, unless they've done a few other things, will be saved. So we have to counter this statement with all of the other statements in scripture that declare that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. For example, in Acts 16, 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is Paul speaking to the Philippian jailer. He didn't say, now, have you ever blasphemed against the spirit of God? He just said, if you believe, you will be saved. And in John 6, 40, Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's interesting is it is not entirely clear that all of the Pharisees there had actually blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but they were getting closer, they were about to. It's not entirely clear, but Jesus gives this warning. And so it would seem that blaspheming the Holy Spirit means a person has been brought to a place where they're sinning in such a way that they're unwilling and unable to repent and believe. Now, I suspect that most of us do not get in conversations around the water cooler at work about blaspheming the Holy Spirit or blasphemy at all. And so the challenge, of course, as we go through not, not, not just hard sayings of the Bible, but the Bible, is taking things that, that God in Scripture think are important and making them relevant for us, living in the 21st century, often not dealing with these ideas or things in our daily lives. And my hard job is to make you care about them. And that's not an easy job. But it is important for us as I said a minute ago, that if God puts something in his word, that it, at some point, is, it behooves us to investigate it and say, well, it's there for a reason. God thinks it's important for us. And it's important for us to explore a topic like this. So the answer for a believer, for those of us who actually follow Jesus and see Jesus as the Savior, 
that Jesus is who he says he is, as to whether we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the short answer is just no. Because those blaspheming the Holy Spirit are not the kind of people who are seeking repentance and are concerned that they've somehow offended God by slandering his spirit. Now listen, Christians can commit all kinds of sin, but what marks a Christian is that they don't settle into those sins long term. And if you're struggling with a sin this morning long term, I just want to encourage you that God is with you in this struggle through the Holy Spirit, and you ought to never stop seeking forgiveness and seeking God's strength to help you overcome. In this life, you know, we may never stop sinning. The gospel is for sinners like us, ragged and torn up people who live in this world who are beat up by our sins. It's not permission to sin, but it's the idea that we will often wrestle with certain sins our whole lives. And what marks a Christian is that the work of the Holy Spirit is in us, that we're not settling, we're not okay, we haven't made a settlement with our sins, we mortify and fight against our sins every day. We hate our sins, and we regularly repent of our sins, which is one of the reasons why we had a confession of sin here in our service just a little while ago, because we want you to be in the habit, we want us all to be in the habit of regular confession. You know, it's important to confess. Christians hate their sins, as we should. In fact, I would say you should hate your own sins more than you hate the sins of others. You should hate your own sins more than the sins of others. In prayer, Lord, help me to hate my sins more than I hate the sins of others. Did you know that's how, that's how you prevent from becoming judgmental? A real judgy person <laughs> is you recognize your own struggles. And before you go pointing the finger at other people, your own sins are always in front of you. And we can be grieved by the culture. We can be grieved by th things around us. But it's good to hate your own sins more than you hate the sins of others. Christians turn to God for forgiveness. So no, a Christian cannot commit what Jesus calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And scripture tells us that no one can confess Christ as Lord except by the Spirit. So the people blaspheming the Holy Spirit are not the same people confessing Jesus as Lord because it is only by the Holy Spirit that we can do that. Now, even though we can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Is blasphemy in the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit the same thing? The answer is no. And you can see the difference in Ephesians 4, 29 through 31. Look at what Paul says to the Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus. Let no corrupting talk, again, it relates to speech, doesn't it? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Isn't that interesting? The very people who are sealed for the day of redemption, you and I, can grieve the Holy Spirit, but we're sealed for the day of redemption which means the Spirit's guarantee on us never leaves us. It's sealed on us. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So the similarity between grieving the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit is that they both relate to speech. It's what we do with our mouths. And what we do with our mouths in the sight of God is incredibly important. James said the tongue is a world of iniquity, right? You can set whole worlds ablaze with the tongue, right? The things you say. People get killed by saying certain things to other people. And you can calm people down with the tongue, can't you? With the speech, right? Grievous words stir up anger, but a a soft word, right, calms people. So the similarity is they both relate to speech, what we do with our mouths. We grieve the Holy Spirit with speech that's bitter and wrathful. And I just wonder if, uh, this may be anecdotal, but I wonder if men, we struggle with this more than women because maybe men struggle with anger more than women do. I don't know, but there's always sort of like a low-level hostility lying right beneath the surface. And I do think some of that is actually from God, right? We're wired to protect our homes. We're also wired to recognize threats from someone who would harm our family. And so there's like a level of hostility, I think, that maybe is at least a good thing in that we're able to control it, but it always seems to lie beneath the surface. I heard someone say recently that interactions between women, even when they're tense, are not like interactions between men. I don't know that women are always thinking, this woman might sock me in the jaw if things get too wild. Men always feel that way when there's a hostile exchange with another man. Most of the time it doesn't happen, but we always know that there's like these concentric layers of hostility. And so that ability to counter violence and hostility is always lying right there with most men. And I think it also means that we have an ability to say things with our mouths because of that sort of hostility that always lies underneath the surface. We have this ability, if we're not careful, to use bitter, wrathful speech guided by anger and slander. Now, women can do it too. But what's amazing about all of this is that speech has an amazing power to build up or to tear people down. Speech, what we say, there's power in the things we say to people. We can affirm them or we can destroy them. And I would imagine some of us have lifelong issues related to someone, maybe a parent, who tore us down instead of building us up. You know, you've heard people say, well, they've got daddy issues. Well, maybe. Right? And some of us have lifelong issues from someone who we loved, who we thought loved us, who spent more, more time tearing us down than building us up. And it messes with us. So what's the test of whether or not our speech builds others up like it says here in Ephesians? Well, does it give grace to the one who hears it? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good as for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So that's a, that's a test, right, for your speech. Does your speech give grace to the people who hear what you say? Do people feel good after talking with you, right? Like, 
man, I like that guy or I like that lady, you know? Um, you know, I enjoyed my conversation. Or was it like, you know, yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't stop talking about themselves, right? And some of us struggle with that. Some of us are really good listeners. Some of us know how to ask good questions about other people and some of us like to talk about ourselves. And some of us are really critical. That's another test, right? Is your speech always harsh, critical, judging, or unkind or severe? Do you think that sort of God has appointed you to be the person to always tell somebody what's wrong or what they need to fix? Sometimes that's appropriate, but if that's the only thing that you're about, you know, it, it's, it's not the kind of speech that builds up. I remember in seminary, in one of our preaching labs, so in seminary they teach you how to preach, and you have usually a local pastor, and this pastor was um, or been pastoring a long time, he'd written a couple books on preaching, and after each student gets up to preach, he's going to give sort of a critical assessment of the things we did right, the things we did wrong, and he lets the students, the other students who are also gonna get up and preach, weigh in. But one of the things he said that I loved is he said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to share a, a word about what you did right and what you could have improved, but to the rest of you students, you don't get to say anything critical because you don't have enough experience to be able to tell this other person whether they have been preaching good or not. So he said, you can say something affirming and I'll, you leave the criticism to me. <laughs> and not every, other, not every other preaching lab professor did that and sure enough, you'd have these guys who had no experience preaching just shred the other student, you know? It wasn't building, it wasn't speech that built people up. And I would imagine some of those students went out of there feeling like, I'll never preach again, <laughs> you know? And often people early on need a lot of building up, right? Your kids, as they are learning things, right, they need a lot of encouragement, you know? Yeah, that's it, you know? You did it right. And as they get older, they're able to, to bear down under the weight of criticism more. But just as a rule, are people encouraged after talking with you, or are they discouraged? Is the Holy Spirit grieved by your speech, or is the Holy Spirit delighted in the way you talk with other people because your speech builds people up, not tears them down? Now Paul says this really important phrase here, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so we realize that grieving the Holy Spirit is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We may from time to time grieve the Holy Spirit, but that same Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. Look, in this life, we will say things we regret. And I'm at a place in my life where I'm trying to say less things I regret. And I think I'm getting better at it, but sometimes I just put, you know, open mouth, insert foot. And in this life, we will say things we regret, and at times we will grieve the Holy Spirit. But our hope is in Jesus. who controlled his speech in such a way where it says that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Praise be to God that we stand justified by his sinless life. And so our hope and the hope of heaven in us is not that we have never said an errant, offending word that has grieved the Holy Spirit, but rather our faith and our hope is in one who there was no deceit ever found in his mouth. Are you trusting in your own righteousness this morning or are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ? On that great and glorious day, when we stand before Almighty God, we will put on robes of righteousness, Scripture says, which is the righteousness of Christ. That's where our hope and our trust is. I hope you're trusting in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for the grace that unites us in your Son, Jesus, in whom was no guile or deceit found in his mouth slander, bitterness. Father, we look to Christ as our conquering Savior and hero who will bring us all along with him into glory because it is by his righteousness and faith in his perfect and eternal holy life and in his perfect holy death that we are saved. Thank you now, O God. We are encouraged by this word that we are his, and in his name we pray, amen.